Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Man, good morning. You can be seated. It's good to see you. Thank you. There we go. Um, yeah, it's good to be here with you. Last week uh, was was a great week for me and Allie. We were able to. Um, and go to Colorado to a pastor's conference, just pastors and wives through Acts 29. Uh, and that was a wonderful thing for us, uh, especially knowing that we could go and relax and, and worship uh, because Clayton was laboring hard to create a sermon and lead you guys well in, which he did a great job. So uh, just in light of that, we want to celebrate those types of things. I'm keeping this before you. So uh, you don't necessarily need to be like, that was the best sermon ever, but m- maybe thank him. Like he has another job and he labored to lead you well, and he, and he labored so that I could rest while, while we were gone. So I'm just really encouraged by that. So we need to get good at celebrating those types of things. So let's just jump right in. Uh, I remember reading for, uh, it's called Porter Brook. It's a theological course that I took several years ago when, uh, right before planting the church or in the first bit of planting the church, in a section that they had, they, they taught about a strange baptism practice that took place years ago uh, during the Crusades. In the Crusades, the church was baptizing the knights of the, the Templar, but they would do it while letting them hold their swords in the hand, right? So they're holding their swords in the hand, but here's kind of the catch. As they were baptized, they wouldn't allow their swords to go under the water. Like imagine what that looks like, getting taken out into the water, watch it play out. A person would allow literally all of them uh, except one hand that it's tightly grasped to a sword to go under the water and just this hand with the sword stays outside of the water. And this is their way of saying through baptism, Jesus, you can have control of all of me, all of me except my sword. There's one thing that you cannot have control of. Jesus, I'm yours, but on the battlefield, I need to be able to be in control of what I do with my sword. That area is off limits to you. That's not a part of the the deal to my salvation or my baptism or anything else like that. Jesus, you can have all of me, um, but I'm going to roll with this. I'm going to keep the sword. And that stuck with me for a while, and they kind of went on to to say, uh, if that practice was held on to today, uh, not many of us would likely ask to hold our sword above the water, but here's the reality. Many of us would ask, hey, can I keep my wallet above the water, though? Like my finances, my 401k, my mad money, can, can I hold that up? Can, can, can I do that like they did? My, my guess is many of us would maybe try and do this, declaring, Jesus, you can have all of me, all of me except my finances, Uh, The way I use my finances is off limits to you. That's not a part of the deal. And in this weird way where Jesus, take my wheel, Jesus, take my eternity, Jesus, take my sin. But if it's all the same to you, I'll keep the money. You handle all that, I can take care of this. It's mine. It's mine. And I bring that up because as we move further into this Old Testament book of Nehemiah, this topic surfaces of finances and specifically financial stewardship in the text. That's something that we're going to see, especially that the topic of gospel and character formation takes place through monetary means at times. Our money affects our heart. 
And specifically, what you do with your money matters a lot to your heart and your faith. And, and let me do this. I was joking with, with the elders before. You're like, man, I, I could have been playing with bottle rockets, but I came to church on 4th of July, and this is what I get. You're talking about money. Let, let, me, let me try and ease your anxiety just a little bit. Uh, this is not a six-part series that we're starting over money. It's just an exegetical sermon. We preach books section by section, and the next section that we're in deals with money. So what are we going to do? We're going to deal with money. We're not dealing out a brand new building campaign. I'm not in three weeks systematically going to ask for a raise. That's not what's happening here. And if you've been with us, we don't even pass the plate. I've had newcomers go like, hey, like, how's the money work? Like, we do online donations. You can go to the church app and you can download uh, that and you can tie through that or you can go to our website. So what we're not going to do is begin to speak about money, guilt you hard, and then pass it around going like, you gonna, you gonna, are you going to let that pass by? That's, that's not what we're going to do. Uh, because it's an exegetical sermon, though, here's what we will do. We'll unapologetically talk about money because Jesus and the Bible do a lot. Our money is tied to our heart. Matthew 6 says this, and we could have picked tons and tons of, of, of snippets from the New Testament and specifically from Jesus, but no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon, they, they called it in the text. Now, in reference to the book of Nehemiah, like we're too far in to do full recaps, Right? You might say, thank God, and the kids' workers say, thank God as well. Um, but the last couple of weeks, what we've seen in the book is opposition to the mission of God, right? And Clayton did a good job with this last week, and, and I covered it the, the week before. There are literal people putting themselves in the way to obstruct and resist the work of God and the mission of God. Specifically, what we've seen is three powerful men, men from the outside, outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, outsiders who were external threats. Are you following me? They were out there hindering the mission of God. In chapter 5, the section that we'll look at today, the external threats, at least for like a second, they, they, they are contained to a certain degree. But then Nehemiah faces the unexpected internal threat of dissension and exploitation. The obstructions coming from within the family. It's not out there anymore. It's inside from Israel. The threat is from the family, and this threat that the family is, is kind of placing upon the body of God. There, there's a real threat that the work of God could be in jeopardy at that moment if it doesn't get taken care of. Now, what we'll do is we'll read this text, and we're going to see this, this exploitation, this internal threat stuff is, is going to come, uh, and the way it opens up at the beginning is there's these outcries of people who've had enough and they're hurt too much, and so they, they begin telling Nehemiah, what's happening to them as far as the exploitation. So we'll see in these, in these first uh, five verses diff three different outcries. Uh, verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Again, this is against their, their fellow people. For there were those with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep and live. 
There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is, is as of the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is the, the, the opening part. We'll have more sections to, to come. But the opening verses show a tragic scenario playing itself out inside the people of God. Nehemiah had been called to rebuild Jerusalem so God's people could be restored. And through prayer and planning, he recruited uh, Jewish people to help him with the task. He couldn't take it alone, so he recruits other people. So from a distance, Jewish people under God are helping restore Jerusalem. Jewish people in the in the city of God, but now all of a sudden there is an outcry over friendly fire, a claim that Jewish people were neglecting, hurting, oppressing, and exploiting each other. Fellow citizens, they're hurting their own family is what we see. Again, there's three outcries in the text and their accusations, and they have to deal with three things. The first cry is about food. The second outcry is about land. And in broad spectrum, the third outcry is about their children being sold into slavery because of how impoverished they are. So context is, is pretty important here to understand why this is happening. Now, remember, the workers had agreed to help to rebuild with Nehemiah. Right? They were previously exiled in other places. They were spread out, sold to the nations. So they come and they help rebuild Jerusalem. But for them to come and rebuild Jerusalem that was torn down, they had to leave the other place that they had been posted up before. So this first outcry is from the helpers that have maybe either lower means, were day-to-day -day monetarily, or had large families. They had lived day by day. They came to rebuild. And it meant since they're coming to rebuild in Jerusalem, they can't work the job that they were working before. So to be faithful to God and faithful to this call and faithful to the thing that they were called to do, they had to leave their own work. They had to leave their own means. And remember during the outside opposition, not only did they have to leave their home, they had to stay in Jerusalem because, because no one could leave. So they couldn't get back. They couldn't do any side jobs. They couldn't do anything to make money. So they couldn't feed themselves. Right, you've fallen, I've come to help Jerusalem, now we're cut off and oppressed, and I can't make it by, my large family can't even feed itself, and the fellow citizens refuse to, to help them, right? Now, imagine what this looks like. People are going to help. I'm going to go and I'm going to observe this call to help rebuild. Then there are other people who are your neighbors before who didn't come, and they watched you struggle, and they wouldn't help you, right? Your fellow brothers who are an outsiders, they were, they were in exile, they saw you, and they would not help you. And the only way that anybody would help is like, oh, brother, I'm so sorry that you can't feed your family. Here, here, I'll loan you money for a whole lot of interest, for an incredibly high rate. So imagine you have a large family, somebody, you already can't make your ends meet. So somebody's like, hey, I'll, I'll float you some money to get by. You take it, but the interest rate is so high, like you couldn't buy food before. How are you going to pay them back on top of a high interest rate? There was nothing that would work there. They were pushed into further poverty and it was a terrible situation. The, the situation would be akin to us, Redemption Hill, sending a missionary uh, to uh, Kenya or some other country, refusing to fund them, refusing to meet their ba basic needs, 
kids, refusing to have compassion for them. Then all of a sudden they hit a roadblock and you're like, ah, oh, man, that stinks. I'll give you a thousand a month. Just give me 1500 back each month. I give it to you though. This is what is happening. The people of God who are doing the work were being hurt by the people of God who, who in many cases weren't doing the work. So the second outcry comes from another group of people who had land somewhere else. They left their land to come again, devote themselves to the mission of God as well. And then all of a sudden towards the, they, they believe it's probably the latter half of the rebuild of the, the wall. There's a massive famine that came through. And the famine hit hard, and because of this famine, they essentially mortgaged their lands back at home to pay for food, right? They, they took loans. Their Jewish brothers would give them loans uh, against their properties to be able to buy food, and then if they defaulted on it, they, they'd take their land. So imagine you have a home and a vineyard somewhere else. You come to work. Your brother's like, hey, I'll help you out. All of a sudden, you can't pay him back, and you're like, that's cool. I own your house now. This is what is happening? Then the third outcry came from another group who had to take loans for their taxes. We saw in the first week that King Artaxerxes let the people go rebuild. Like, oh, cool, what a nice guy. Well, kind of. He still wanted his money, though. You still had to pay your taxes. You still had to pay the tributes or whatever they had in place. And as the famine hit and as the taxes were not taken away, uh, the, the work drew on longer and longer. People had to sell their own children into slavery to pay off the tax debt so that they wouldn't be enslaved or maybe even possibly killed. This form of slavery was the prevailing type back then when you would put yourself or your kids into slavery to pay off a debt. Hey, thanks, Judah. I wanted a truck. You're going to work eight years for that for me, buddy. Like, this is kind of what's happening here, selling their own kids into slavery to, to pay off their debt. But this was tragic, though, because what is happening is they're, they're, they're trading their kids or sending their kids into slavery. But who are they enslaved to? Their fellow brothers. Their own brothers are enslaving each other for money and interest and payment and to get ahead. So step back and realize the audacity of what's kind of happening here to this group of people. They decided to go faithfully and serve the mission of God. They hear the calling. They're like, yes, God, strengthen our hand. Let's, let's do this. Let's go. And they go and they begin to do the work. But in my, mind you, what you have to understand is they go do the work and there's no stimulus check. There's no Biden bucks. Like there's no safety net. There's no way to get help. And when the situation got dire and unforeseen things happened like opposition and famine, they were getting crushed so badly that they couldn't even get food. They were losing the little bit that they had and some of their kids were had to put in slavery just to try and get by. While this happened, not only did some turn a blind eye to their brother's struggle, others thought, I can make some money off of this. And they exploited them, giving them predatory loans, ones that they couldn't pay back, ones that, that would always pay the, the lender and always hurt the lendee with high, high interest. So can you imagine this playing out in fellow times or in modern times? Somebody goes to do the mission of God and then word gets back that they're hurting or they're struggling or they don't have money for food or something like that. Can you imagine how many times in modern times we would hear about a brother going to do that and other people would go, I just didn't plan very well enough. They didn't plan well. It's their own fault. Like, I would have planned better. If you don't work, you don't eat, you know. It's their own fault. I'll help them. For 50% interest. This is what's happening here. 
People were sent to do the mission of God, and people who weren't going or saw it exploited them to keep them in a bad spot, to capitalize off their struggles. Can you just feel that modern-day thing in you that, that would maybe analyze someone's situation and be like, well, that's your own fault, but they're faithful to God. Now, you may again wonder, why is it this, this such a big deal, this interest in loans and, and capitalism and all, and all of this? Well, it's a big deal because of Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. This is in the Old Testament. This is a part of the Torah. This is when God is laying out how his people are to live and to, to, to uh, treat each other. And it says this, and like you, as you read the text, there's no like, well, maybe in the original language, do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother interest so that the Lord, your God, may bless you in everything that you do in the land you are entering to possess. Now, God has from the beginning told his people that they are going to be set apart and holy like he is holy. I'm going to do something different in you. Meaning that the people of God, even in the Old Testament, or especially uh, then as they're separated from the, the nations, they're not to look like, operate like, live like, or love like the other people around them. God's people are called to be distinctly different in how they live, especially in how they live in relation to community and how they love the family or the body of God around them. One of the ways that we are to be different in our love and care for one another is God commanded his people, do not take, uh, do not take advantage of each other when they're struggling by loaning each other things for high interest or any interest, actually. If someone needs something to get by, and you're going, hey, I'll help you if I can make a hundo off of it. Because it shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't be taking advantage of our own. The point is that the radical and free grace that God gives to his children, remember God enters in and makes a covenant with his children, that grace that he gives to his children should be passed to fellow believers in the form of generosity and love. Again, think of it this way. When you look around the world, it should be pretty commonplace to see people taking advantage of each other in order to get ahead. It shouldn't be like that inside the people of God, though. Why? Because the grace of God has marked their hearts so much that it's influenced the way that they care for the people around them. Again, the people of God don't take advantage of each other, and also the people of God... Do not bury their head into the sand to where they do not ask, how do I acquire my money and spend my money and is it hurting people to get it? Do you understand that? Like turning a blind eye to like, am I getting my money in a way that I shouldn't? God goes, no, 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 no. We don't do that. The people of God are called to live generously and in love for one another. And yet in the text, what we find is this direct command, do not charge interest. They're doing that. They're not being generous. They're exploiting one another. Even so far as to let each other be slaves, the original language might lead to believe that some of the, the, the females are actually sold into sex slavery at one point so that your brother can get ahead. Now, again, we may think, well, okay, is this just Old Testament stuff? No. Yes, this is an example in the Old Testament, but look forward to the New Testament in Jesus what did Jesus do when he came to the temple? He took a cord and he made a whip out of it. He flew in and he flipped tables angrily. Jesus, the Savior, angry. Why? 
because people are taking advantage of their own and the least of these. The house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer where we show the world something different as well. And instead, they're taking advantage of each other. And Jesus runs and flips over the tables and goes, it shouldn't be this way. People were looking out for themselves and themselves alone. Verses Nehemiah, or, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And we'll see Nehemiah's response. Remember, there's three accusations. They get to Nehemiah, and then let's look at what Nehemiah does. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you were exacting interest each from his brother? Right, pretty blatant. Like, are you kidding me? And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brother that, you, that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and they couldn't find a word to say. There's, there's, there's not even a rebuttal to what they're doing. The text reads, interestingly, I Nehemiah seems to be so angry that he had to like, he had to almost calm his anger to settle himself down because dude was raging when he found this out. Um, but then when his anger subsided, when he wasn't like too hot to roll in, uh, he gathered uh, the people and what he says to them is gut-wrenching. We've been trying as hard as we can to free our brothers that's why we're doing this for the name of God and the people of God. We're working to free them so that they can have a home and be free. We're working to bring them back from the nations that they were sold to, and yet you're now selling them back to each other. Do you hear this? We're doing this to free them from bondage, and you're putting them back in it. What has happened in your heart to do that? The nobles and the officials, again, they had no words. What do you say to that? And the reality is there's nothing that you can say. Then look at Nehemiah after catching them red-handed, and he speaks to them, and he says this. I wish there were times that, that we could just make words land deeper. Shouldn't you fear the Lord more than this? Like, that's, that's his ask. And this isn't like a, a hyped-up form of shame. This is a serious question. What is happening in your heart to where you do not fear the God of the universe and you think this is okay? Shouldn't you fear him more than this? His point is you're not just like disobeying some little thing. It's a direct command of God, but you're also living as if God isn't in charge of all things and doesn't see what you're doing. They had become brazen in their disobedience. That was his point. Do you not fear God at all? Are, are you so brazen that you would do this and think it doesn't matter? We learn from the creation account in Psalms 24 that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Right? That's not just some like nifty psalm that we tell our kids, sing it. Like, no, no. The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. As one theologian put it, I believe it's Kuiper, he says, there isn't one inch of the world that God doesn't look at and declare, mine. It's mine. And it means all that we have and all that we see is actually God's. Our house, 
our business, our land, our money, our food, our booze, our toys, our children, our bodies. Even our time and our talents are not our own, they're God's. He owns it all. It's all his. This is why the Bible uses the language of stewardship all over the place, because we don't own things outright. We are stewards of God's creation. If he created it all and he owns it all, even when we hold things in our hands, they're his. He's letting us hold them. The story of the Bible is God created everything, and out of an overflow of his goodness, he invites us into his creation and into his community. Right? We, we, didn't, we didn't do all this. He creates, brings us in, and says, I want you to enjoy what I have created. We are those enjoying the fruits of God's labor and not our own. And hear me, one day the question will be asked, what would you do with my stuff? Now, we're not going for shame here, but we do need to tell the truth. You have things in your hands, and God's not oblivious to it. Remember even the, the quote from Nehemiah, shouldn't you fear the Lord? Same thing, the things in our hands, shouldn't we fear the Lord with what's in our hands? What did you do with the gifts and the goods and the things of mine that I let you hold on to? Now, some of the nobles and officials had started living as if the world was their own, as if they didn't need to concern God with what they did financially. This is a a separated and segregated life. I do this, you do this. You take care of this, I take care of this. As if God didn't get to speak into what they acquired and how they acquired more or how they used what was his. And Nehemiah calls them to repent of the brazen sin against God, calling them to remember these actions are a challenge to God himself, the God who is in control. Now we need to pause for a second and take like a little bit of a heart temperature here. Right, the day of freedom, 4th of July, and you're talking about this. How does your heart react to this information? Better yet, how does your your heart react to this truth that the Bible tells you? How does it sit to know that everything you have is actually God's? The minutes of your day from the air that you breathe are gifts that that aren't yours. You think about that? That breath you just took? It's not your own. He gave it to you your savings, your 401k, your mad money, your vacation money. It's not only yours, but they are all possessions of God's that you and I are holding on to. If you hear that and it just makes that inside thing and you go like, I don't like that that offends you, if it bothers you, if it grieves you deeply that the things that are yours aren't yours alone. I want to ask you to just maybe consider this. Is it not because your view of God has somehow got twisted or jaded though? You see, it's only bad news that the stuff that you have is his if he's not trustworthy. A good God who makes all this and gives you good gifts It's only bad news that we are stewards if we believe down deep that God is unjust and cruel. 
if we believe that we're better managers than he is, that we know better, that, that, that he isn't really out for our joy. But understand that thing that happens in the heart that does that. I think all of us may feel, depending on the day that we're on, this is the exact same scenario that played itself out in Genesis 3 after creation, isn't it? Adam and Eve began believing that God wasn't out for their best interests, that they could do better on their own, that, that maybe they shouldn't trust him, that carving out their own path and doing their own thing and, and managing their own things would be better than as if, if they submitted to God. Every moment that this creeps in, that we could do better without God over us, we're believing the exact same lie that they did in the garden. It's an apple and tree moment over and over and over that goes, I could do better without you. May my call to your heart and mine is every time that happens is to address it with truth. My hope is that for you and I is that we would trust God with everything that we have. Remembering what is true biblically, God isn't a dictator trying to restrain you from the perfect life that you would be on a path towards if he just leave you alone. Right? That's not what's true. Biblically, you and I being left to our own devices is the worst thing for us, not the best. God is God who has stepped in to love you and me when we desperately need it. That's what's true of him. He is the God that defends us from the desires of our hearts that send us into wacky places at times. Even if you hear nothing about financial uh, stewardship and generosity in this text, I pray that you hear again that God is good, though. He's worthy of your trust and submission. He is not a dictator. He's not trying to hurt you. He is the God who not only saw and and rebuilt Jerusalem through the people, he is also the God who sent his most prized possession down to us in our great need. While our hearts are prone to withhold our greatest treasures, I'm going to save that for me, God literally sent down his Right, this is the gospel. He poured out his greatest treasure to redeem those who'd sinned against him and defamed his name. He poured out the greatest thing there is of his in order to save us. God literally gave the son to wayward sons and daughters so that they could be free. This is the gospel message. This was accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It was God. Sharing with us what is more valuable than all things, anything we'll ever hold on to. He shared himself in the form of Christ. This kind of God is good. The question is, do you believe that or not, though? Walk further down the road. He doesn't make you pay for your own sin. He doesn't make you atone for yourself. He doesn't require that you earn or beg or borrow or achieve or make yourself so likable that he'll deal with you. He instead shows you his love by pouring out Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. If you haven't trusted in this God with your entire life, right? if there's a part of your life that you're still holding under the water going, I've got to keep that. The hope is that you would see who the real God is. He is worthy of all things. He's loved you when you hated him. He's worthy of not holding anything back anymore. And I pray that you and I would see that he is just and kind, whether that's your finances, your time, your thoughts. He's not oppressive. 
He's where we find life. After Nehemiah gathered the, the nobles, I don't have time to go into that. He, they repent by giving it back. Right? There's this form of repentance like, sorry, give it back. Right? They had to give back the money and the land and the slaves. Like, we don't have time for that. Be, be careful of half-hearted repentance. We'll just leave it at that. And then the cool part about the text, again, we don't have time to read that, is the people worshipped after this. I believe the inference is the offended and the offender worshipped. God, you're putting it back together even when we destroy it. Even the offender worshipping. It's good news to my heart. I'm not always the offended one. Verses 14 through 19. So the, the moves in this chapter, accusations, reaction, then we see a little bit about Nehemiah, his character, and how he lives, okay? There's three broad moves that we'll see. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, this is Nehemiah, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, uh, 12 years neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Remember, he didn't just say, like, shouldn't you fear the Lord? He's fearing the Lord. I also persevered in the work of the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations who were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This chapter ends as Nehemiah foregoes some of the regular benefits that he could have taken. It was customary for people in his position to require the people under him and that he was leading for a food donation and money and different things like that, and he didn't do it. He could have required the people to, to, to kind of uh, help him out so he could live off of them and then use his other money to kind of save up. He didn't do any of that. He did not use the moments that he could have to get ahead because it would have hurt the people. He didn't require daily donations from the people, and he didn't even take his, his other governor allowances. In essence, the text is beginning to show us that godly men and women Love the people around them instead of getting fat off of them. We do not exploit. There's moments inside, I think, when we see moments like, oh, I could, we don't do that. We don't do that. Why? Because we're great moral people? No, this is a shadow of the Christ who comes after Nehemiah. Jesus didn't look to gain power and wield it over the people who were below him. Instead, Jesus, what did he do? He laid down his power to love those around him. This is the Christ. His strength was shown in his kindness, not his wrath. Thank God for that. We as followers of Christ are called to do the same, to lay down our lives. Interestingly enough, these last verses show something that really offends 
believers over a period of time, but largely our culture right now. And it also balances out this text in a, in a pretty beautiful way. So follow me. It says that Nehemiah fed 150 people daily besides those who had came from the nations or others who helped build the wall. So he prepared at his own expense. Remember, he could have had governor's allowances and all these things. He didn't take them. He prepared at his own expense one ox, six sheep, and birds every single day. The wall took an estimated 12 years to build. 365 days times 12 years equals 4,380 oxen. 26,280 sheep. Nehemiah slaughtered just to feed other people. The text says that he didn't just give them food, though. He also did more. Every 10 days, he gave them wine in abundance. Like wedding party wine. Right? Like open bar? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll take one. Like that kind. Again, he did all of that, not with government allowance, not with handouts. He didn't take the people's stuff and be like, look how kind I am to give it back to you. He did it out of his own wealth and the gifts that God had placed in his hands. See, this is important because while the opening text challenges our generosity to make sure that we are not exploiting and that we're not selfish with what's in our hand, there's a growing movement that the tail end of this text addresses as well. There are those who believe that it's a sin to be rich, and that's not biblical. It's not. Jesus did not call you to have nothing. If you have nothing, okay, but he's not telling you that you make sure I'm not walking into prosperity. He's not telling you follow me and you get all this stuff, but he's not saying to follow me means you're going to be broke as a joke. That's not in the Bible. You don't find it. You do not have to have next to nothing or else you're sinful. How does this play out in our lives though? I, I, I've had it in my heart. I've seen it in some of yours at different times. Like the feeling of shame when you buy a new house, like you've done something wrong. Like living inside your financial needs and you buy a house, you're like, ah. It can make some of us feel bad if you just if you put money in retirement. Like, could I could I have been more faithful with that money? Some feel awkward if their parents paid for their college. God put things in their hands and they were wise and paid for your college. Like I don't know. Like that tension in the heart. And I've even heard some of you worry about going on vacation when you're very generous already. Well, like, man, should I have used that money in, in different ways? Did I do something wrong here? Because there's this fear that having excess is a sign of disobedience somehow. What does this text show us? Having money isn't a sin. It's a blessing, especially when you're generous with it. Here's the thing. The issue isn't how much money do you have. It's what are you doing with the money that God has put in your hands? Did he give you a little? Did he give you a lot? Doesn't matter. The question is, what are you doing with the amount that he put in your hands? Nehemiah was a rich man. I don't have 4,380 oxen to just slaughter to feed you. Successful way beyond many of the people around him. But hear the beauty of this. In a gospel-centered, God-centered mindset, his abundance in wealth is what allowed him to have an abundance in generosity. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong to be unfaithful with what you do have.
there's a huge difference there. We want to be those who are faithful with our time, treasure, and our talent. Our, 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 uh, talent. And if God sees fit to allow us to have more money and our financial means grows, then a gospel-centered mentality is to want to have our generosity grow in proportion to what he's put in our hands. Does that make sense? This is why tithe as a percentage is such a good thing for your heart. Right? You, many of you have been through membership. Like I don't, I don't like make you sign that you're giving this, but tithe as a percentage, which has normally been 10%, is good for your heart because the amount that you give and are generous with is, is generally tied to what you have in your hands. It's a protection to your heart. As you get more, we give away more. As God is more generous to us, we're more generous to others. Again, it's not saying follow God and you'll be rich, but if he puts riches in your hands, it's what are you doing with them? This is why it's a good practice to look at your finances uh, every year because if God, if he increases the amount that you have been given over a season, then you get to give more away for mission and compassion and generosity. This is what Nehemiah did. Right, you understand this, like one oxen, six sheep, uh, and, and birds, and, and tons of booze every 10 days. Like, that's not the smartest welfare plan. There are people who are like, oh, you could have probably done that better. It's not, you don't get to say that. With what he had in his hands, he was generous, and it was beautiful. God gave him much, so he gave away much. We need to learn to navigate these truths in our world, especially with the messages that are going around around us. Be careful. Like, if you want to talk later, like the messages in our world right now are make that person be generous so I don't have to. That's the gospel of the world right now. Right, all this behind the one percenters and all, all these different things, most people, it's a smokescreen. Make them fix it because I ain't giving anybody any of my money. We're not called to do that. There is no sin in having a lot. There's just a sin in hoarding what you have. It's a sin to become less generous as we go. So here's the beauty of the gospel. As you walk further in, you see God's grace grow and grow and grow and grow. Our generosity shouldn't then like get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Think about this. God puts means in our hands to show his character off with. What if we looked at money that way? He puts things in our hands to show the world what he's like. Our finances tell a story about the character of God. Our means and our financial stewardship likewise testify to the character of God, which raises the question for us. What's the story you're writing? You're an author. What story are you writing about God with your life? Is your stewardship portraying God as stingy and selfish and disconnected? Or is your stewardship declaring that God is generous, kind, and compassionate? The God who freely gives good gifts to those around him. The money is not our own, but it is writing a book to the world about who God is. So we have to keep applying theology even to our wallets. And here's the thing, it's a test from my heart as well. First of all, we shouldn't be down talking about money. God is a good God, and what he gives us, we get to testify about him with it. 
The thing is, we just have to make sure that we're not lying to the world about what he's like. What's tragic right now, we're, getting, we're on the descent. What's tragic right now is a growing number of professing believers have their eyes set on things like early retirement and two houses. And what has it done? It's stunted their generosity forevermore in order to clear the bar that they've set for themselves. There are many who have bought into the American dream that more equals better. Bigger houses, nicer cars, better vacations at the expense of generosity. Which looks like this. It looks like the people of God ending up becoming less generous over time instead of more. Again, you got a nice car, you got a nice house, good on you. That's fine. But God does ask us, proportionally, are you generous though? My help is simple through this. That if we've gone astray, just that we would repent. I'm not passing the bucket later. I'm not trying to make us feel shameful. I want us to be free from the slavery to more and money like the world is. So if we all of a sudden realize, like, oh, crap, that got, like, that got out a little out of hand this last year. Okay, praise God that he showed you. We get to write a beautiful story about God. Even this, like, man, if we've shown, like, hey, money has gotten off, what a powerful story it is to unbelievers to go, like, not in braggery, but to be able to kind of show off our generosity, show God off. What he puts in our hands is a blessing, not a curse. We get to show off the lavish love of God with what's in our hands, be it a little or be it a lot. We get to live counter-cultural lives as those set free from slavery and bondage all because of Jesus. Now, my hope is that you don't see this text as a bummer. But as a moment just to see Jesus, Christ has freely given more than you will ever be asked to give away. He gave his life to set us free, to make us his own, to redeem us as his people. Let us model the Savior, not just in words, but with what we do with what's in our hands. Let us hold nothing above the water any any longer if we are. Here's the beautiful part about you, some of you. Some of you have amazed me with your generosity. We're not just trying to beat each other up. We We look at the text. Some are doing well. Some may need some help. When we got the first round of stimulus checks and I just talked about generosity, I got scared because I'm like, I don't know what we should do with all that money. They gave too much. We gave eight grand away very quickly. Why? Because some of you gave the whole thing. My God has been gracious and I don't need it here. If you've done that, take the win. Celebrate that God is good and he has changed something in you. He has transformed you and then he's doing a good work through the transformation he's done in you. Worship and lie to that. We paid for rehab, rent, a ton of food for people, I think counseling. Uh, We helped small business owners get back up and going. We We were radical with what we had because our God is radically kind to us. That's amazing. If you hear this and you just haven't been there, I'm not asking you to give it all the way. Just... Ask God help, how to help you write a truer story about what he's like with your finances over the next year. That's it. Some of you have done amazing. Some of you guys are probably going, hey, man, will you trust me with that too? 
And then we get a chance to just respond to that. It would be, man, you guys can come back up. Wonderful. I was talking to the elders this week. I'd love to be accused of stupid generosity. Like people step back and go like, well, I wouldn't have done that. We have been, I'm trying to be careful with some of this, but like, I, I lovingly call it, we've been sugar mamas to three churches. They wouldn't have gone without your generosity. Guys who just start, like when we first start, and they had literally nothing, we've helped out. We've done this uh, to one in Jeff City, one in the Quad Cities. There's a guy who is actually an assessor of me through Acts 29 who's going to plant another church in, in the suburbs of Austin, and we just jumped on to support him. We're supporting a missionary in Brazil. We're supporting a, a work called Fishers of Men in Kenya and kids over there. The founder of that is coming in August to tell us more about that. You guys have done well in that. A lot of you celebrate that. But I want to take our foot off the gas on generosity. I want to continue saying, God, what would you have us do? I don't want to build too big a store barns for us. What would you have us do with your stuff? And then just see what he would say. The call personally and the, and the call church-wide has been the same, and this is why I want to like, put this as we, before we close. We give away 10% of what we get at least. So the church isn't saying, hey, be generous, but we're not going to do that. just want to keep that ball rolling. God has been overly kind to us. I want to model him well with everything in our hands. Would you stand with me? We are going to take communion this week. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, or this cup in the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One way we can see that today is when we take the cup, the, the, the bread and the drink, we're going, you gave it all. God, you didn't withhold your best prize. You gave it all for me. I didn't earn it and I don't deserve it. You are merciful and kind. As you do that, take and then worship the God who is gracious and merciful to you. You don't have to be a member here to take. We just ask that your faith is in Jesus and that you're following him well with what is in your hands. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. I pray that you would continue to work in us, Lord. Help us to be those who are generous who are even looked at in certain times as just being radically generous. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, ones who just look at what is in our hands and continually let you affect our heart with that, Lord. For those who have done so well on that, Lord, I pray that you just encourage their heart. Wash the goodness of what you've done. They are not slaves to the things that the world is anymore. I pray that their hearts would just be overjoyed in that. And for those that you're just starting to mess with with that, I pray that they wouldn't feel slammed down into shame. You saved them in your sin and you could save them even when finances need to be adjusted. May we worship you well. I pray that our hearts, if there's any piece of us that is begrudgingly giving, that you would change it into joy. We get to write a beautiful story about you. You're kind and merciful and good. We love you. Be glorified today. Meet us here in our worship. Amen.